Welcome to the 80s and 90s Uncensored, the podcast about the 80s and 90s. I am Milo Dennison. And I'm Jamie Fenderson. And today we're doing a John Hughes retrospective. We've got a new buddy. Um, his name is uh, Edward, and he's from the 80s Movie Podcast. Hey, good afternoon. We figure if we're going to do, you know, a 80s movie-themed retrospective with a filmmaker that's all about the 80s, uh, we might as well get somebody on who is a uh, movie aficionado. An 80s cinephile like <laughs> exactly. us. Because we love 80s movies, and Edward also loves them 80s movies. So welcome to our show, Edward. Thanks Thank for you. hanging out with us. Let's do this. All right. So, uh, John Hughes, everybody knows who John Hughes is, uh, films like pretty in pink home alone, um, you know, 16 candles breakfast club basically Dutch. made, sorry, that's a Dutch. Everybody Dutch. forgets Dutch. Dutch. Well, Don't forget Dutch. Cause he, Don't do it. he, uh, he didn't direct Dutch though. He just wrote it. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, one of the most interesting things about John Hughes for me is that if you look at his career, there's three specific sections of his career. And the one that we think of most is his directing, uh, the movies that he directed, but he only directed eight movies in a seven year period. And he produced dozens of movies over the course of 20 years. But when we think of him as a director, he only directed a very short amount of time. And the most of the movies that we remember him for he didn't actually direct. He didn't direct Home Alone. He didn't direct. Uh, oh, God, I'm blanking on like so many. Beethoven. But most of, was Beethoven. It, yeah, he didn't do Beethoven. Um, it, was, it wasn't 16 Candles. It's um, it's another Molly Ringwald that he didn't direct. Yeah, um, uh, Pretty in Pink. That's the one Pretty I was blanking Pink, on. That's the one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you're right. So everybody thinks of him as this great director. But really what he is, is he's a great writer. I mean, and a great producer. So much, exactly. Yeah, putting yeah. the right directors with the films, uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so that's what I find because, like, for for me, you know, I grew up in the '80s. I was I was 16 when 16 Candles came out. I was 17 <laughs> when Breakfast Club came out. I was 18 when Pretty in Pink came out. I was 19 and working at movie theaters when Some Kind of Wonderful came out. So I kind of grew up literally with John Hughes as my guide and mentor of sorts, the adult who helped me become an adult myself. But as I go back and look at his career, it's just strange that he's so much defined by his first part of his career as the direct writer and director of teen angst movies. But he only did those for like three years Mm -hmm. between pretty and pink I'm sorry, between 16 Candles and Some Kind of Wonderful, that's a three-year time span. That's it. And, and it's just amazing to think that he was able to get so many memorable projects out in such a short amount of time that we still talk about them nearly 40 years later. That's just mind-blowing sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's because I think he did something with them that everybody can relate to. Right. I mean, you watch interviews when they talk about John Hughes and it's like, well, I can relate to this character. I can relate to that character. Mm -hmm. Whereas your modern teen movies, they're 
they're about extremist behaviors. Like, like I, I, I like the um, American pie movie. Uh, I think it's actually really funny, but you can't really relate to any of the characters all that much in there. Cause you know, I, as a teenage boy, I didn't behave like any of them, but <laughs> you it, did, you get in trouble, dude. Yeah, you yeah like totally. You trouble. go to jail. <laughs> uh, I actually have a funny story about the American pie. Um, I actually knew about the movie years before it was made. Um, a director friend of mine, Patrick Reed Johnson, who actually directed Baby's Day Out, written <laughs> and produced by John Hughes, yep. was originally offered um, American Pie back in 1996. Uh, and, he, and back then, it had this insanely long title, like uh, the $10 million teen movie that script readers will hate, but we think you'll love. That was the actual <laughs> original title of the American Pie screenplay when the White Brothers sent it out or not, uh, or when the, the writer sent it out. So he passed on it because he didn't want to do a teen movie. He had just gotten, uh, he'd just written Dragonheart and was supposed to direct Dragonheart, but got kicked off of Dragonheart because he had some clashes with the producers. And he didn't want to go back to what he considered a, a teen movie because he, uh, you know, he, he had grander ambitions than that. So it's just funny for me that these projects, all these projects that John Hughes made, when you think about it, a lot of them he wrote in a very short amount of time. And even if you look at some of the movies that he wrote that never got made, yeah. he wrote like 15 screenplays in a two-year period and, and 10 of them never got made. And you think of John Hughes as this master storyteller who had a Midas touch on so many different movies but a lot of the movies that he wrote never got made. Did you know he wrote a uh, a Jaws sequel? Yeah, yeah, like a, I think it was like supposed to be a Jaws three, if I remember correctly. It was it was a it was going to be a parody of of horror movies like Jaws. It was called Jaws Three People Zero. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> and and that, that should have been made. That's it should have been made, and it's a hilarious script. So basically, what happens in the the script that Hughes wrote is that it's about a film crew that goes to Martha's Vineyard to make a Jaws 3 sequel where bad things keep happening during the movie where people keep getting killed. It's a really is a horror comedy. And at one point, Sid Sheinberg, the president of Universal Studios at the time, who was married to the woman who actually played Chief Brody's wife in the first two movies, shows up as Sid Sheinberg, the president of Universal Studios and the guy who's you know in charge of making sure the movie gets made. It was it was like so very meta. Yeah, when super meta, meta wasn't even a thing yet. And it just skewed everything. And it was going to be produced by National Lampoon. And it was very much supposed to be a a comedy, horror comedy. And then they instead made this really crappy 3D movie instead that kind of killed, almost killed the franchise, which the fourth one did years later. But here's the thing, like, so all of these, there are, yeah, tons of John Hughes scripts out there. Like, why are people not making them? Like, how does the rights work on that? Like, so, he, so he's dead, his wife's dead, but his son, he, I think he had two children, right? And they're yeah. still alive. So I would imagine it rolls over to them or depending on what the option was with the script in the studio, but any options would have expired by now, which means I would imagine the children would own the rights to films like this. They actually wouldn't. So what happens is if you're writing a script for, like say, for example, you get a writing assignment 
from Universal Studios and National Lampoon to write a movie called Jaws 3 that you write as a horror comedy. The script's actually owned by Universal Studios because you are a writer for hire. Okay, so it's only when he's doing spec scripts? Yeah, so, well, unless he specifically sells. Yeah, so if you and I wrote a script called uh, Jaws the Return, which is, you know, the actual title of four, but let's (laughs) let's just say we were going to reboot Jaws, you and I and and Jamie were going to reboot Jaws. If we wrote if we wrote it as a spec script and submitted it to Universal Studios and they rejected it, we couldn't take it to any other studio to get it made as a Jaws movie because they own the rights to Jaws. So we would have to rewrite it where it would have to be about a killer shark that wasn't tied into the Jaws. In other words, it wouldn't be too hard, but then you lose the cachet of it being a Jaws movie. So we would own the screenplay that we wrote if Universal doesn't buy it, but then we can't sell it as a Jaws screenplay right? if we took it to Warner Brothers or Columbia or, or Disney. So uh, it all depends on how the job came to be and then how the negotiations, if we sold another script, let's say we wrote a, an original sci-fi movie about a young man who discovers a... Uh, a mystic old knight of of lore and goes on adventures across the stars. Um, we could take that to any studio, and then if they liked what they read, they would negotiate a a contract with us. And if they got the film made, well, they would own our screenplay. We would be compensated for our work, and hopefully, if we had a good uh, attorney and agent, we would get a cut of the box office. Let's but do they, it. Yeah, <laughs> but they would still own the screenplay. They would own the movie. Yeah, so so to tie into John Hughes, so John Hughes wrote Home Alone. Chris Columbus directed it, and then they made a part two, and then they made a part three, and that was the last one that Hughes was involved with. So when Fox, now Disney, goes and makes another Home Alone movie, whatever their contract was with Hughes for the rights to those characters or that title, that's how much the Hughes estate would get paid. So, cause they just made another home alone for Disney plus. So it would be whatever they negotiated way back in the late eighties when the original home alone was being set up, but Hughes, the Hughes family kind of owns the characters in terms of if they want to use those characters or those situations or that name again, but the studio can literally do whatever they want as long as they just pay the royalties that was agreed to 34 years ago. Well, that's on like established stuff though. Like I'm, I'm thinking, I bet you, I'm thinking there's got to be some scripts that he just wrote because he was such a prolific writer mm-hmm. that are not already tied to any existing IP sitting in a drawer somewhere it, that that maybe somebody could pull out and be like, this is an original John Hughes script that he wrote in 1987 and never got produced, never got picked up, you know, make this. Well, they probably don't make them now, like wouldn't make them now because John Hughes movies are actually pretty like good natured, right? That's the thing about the, like, even the teen movies and stuff. And, but the comedies as well is they're, they're funny, but they're also good natured. Yeah. And I, I think nowadays Maybe they just they're like, no, we can't make stuff like that. You have to be mean spirited and 
and edgy and 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 just kind of dark mean and dark all the time because his, his his stuff's pretty fun and good nature that's what i miss about john hughes movies yeah i mean there's like there's there's dozens of scripts if you go on to wikipedia there's an entire section its own page that's called john hughes's unrealized projects and you read these things where like for example uh john hughes wrote the original screenplay to dumb and dumber and the studio decided to go in a different direction they actually uh, that's when they brought in the Farrelly brothers to write and then direct. But because the the final movie was so different from what John Hughes came up with, he didn't get a even a story by credit. But John Hughes was the guy who came up with Dumb and Dumber. But we don't know that unless unless you unless you know. Or he has another movie that he was going to make called Tickets, which was about a group of teenagers who are. Um, Remember when you used to wait? I don't know if you how old you guys are, but when I was a teenager, you know, you would wait in front of the warehouse to open if you wanted to go see, you know, U2 or something in order to get tickets. You had to wait. Yeah, you outside. couldn't buy them online if you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, because online, online didn't exist yet. So he actually has a screenplay, a very good screenplay that's called Tickets. It's about a group of teenage strangers who are camped out all night in front of a record store <laughs> waiting for it to open the next morning. And it's like super cold. Cause of course it's Chicago in the winter. Cause that's <laughs> what he, but it's their favorite bands final tour. They absolutely have to get. So it's about all of these kids who are freezing their butts off in front of a record store, waiting to buy tickets the next morning. So how do you, you can't make that movie today literally because that scenario doesn't exist. You can make it as a period piece. You could make it as a period piece. You you Jason, Jason Reitman could direct it. Coming up with that idea is so good. Yeah. That's why he's kind of a recluse, right? John is kind of a well, reclusive dude. Well, I know, but he was kind of a, a re, kind of reclusive because you know he's just in his writing room, just thinking up stuff. I mean, that's a great thought, like the tickets thing, and yeah. Uh, and there's a story while I was doing the, my research for my show three years ago that I didn't include. Uh, there was a time where um, he was supposed to make a movie with um, Howard Deutsch, the director of Pretty in Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful, where it was going to be Molly Ringwald and uh, Matthew Broderick uh, in a car together. He's a traveling salesman. She's like a punk rocker. And they're traveling I, I don't remember the exact scenario, but they're in a car together traveling a lot like uh, Steve Martin and John Candy in Planes, Trains and Automobiles, where he was writing that while he was also working on some kind of wonderful. Deutsch tells a story how one day uh, he was working on the screenplay with John Hughes for this movie, this road movie. And he came in the next morning and he had stayed, Hughes had stayed up all night the previous night and wrote 50 pages of a script, <laughs> like in the middle of the night. And he just brought it in the next day to show, show Deutsch. And it's like, what do you think of this? And it was the first 50 pages of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He wrote the entire first half of the movie in one eight hour sitting in the middle of the night one night. And then like the rest, and then wrote rest of the screenplay in four days while he was supposed to be working on the script for some kind of wonderful while they were also working on pretty in pink. The man was a freaking genius. He was, he, he just, 
how he could lock on to an idea and fully realize it that quickly. I keep, I've kept reading these stories about how he would come up with an entire screenplay in a week, a week and a half. And that's the movie that you see on screen. It was like literally his first draft that he wow. came up with in days. So the man that's was amazing. Yeah. yeah. And the ability to be, to jump around and still be in the minds of the characters. Cause like writing is hard, you know, writing and, is hard. and you're focusing on like those specific characters that you're, that you're writing at that time. And then to jump over to something else and then suddenly get into the mind of this entirely new set of characters and this entirely new story and plot and all this like utter genius. I, I wish he would have given more interviews and stuff to talk about his process of writing and stuff. I know there's some out there because he did interviews, you know, back in the eighties and stuff, but like once he retired, he just became a recluse and it's, I would have loved to just sit down with him and be like, let's talk about writing, man. Let's just, let's just sit here for an hour and just, you know, write something. So here's a question. Like, why do you think he retired so early? I think it was just a matter of his kids were growing up. He had done so many projects. I actually did a count this morning. Um, He wrote 31 screenplays that were produced between 1982 and uh, 2001. The final one that he wrote was uh, an adaptation of a, an American adaptation of a French series called The Visitors. Uh, that starred mostly Americans, but actually featured the two main stars of the French series, which included Jean Renault. But he had r- written that years earlier. He pretty much retired in 1997. I think it's because his kids were growing up. Uh, he had been working so hard for a number of years and he just wanted to spend more time with his family. And, and who can blame him? Uh, maybe he had a sense of his own mortality that maybe he knew that had a feeling that he was going to pass away at a younger age and he just wanted to spend some time with his family. Uh, I I can't blame him. I retired at 53 myself because I wanted to spend more time with my family. I had been working for 34 years and we were in a situation where we could afford for me not to work anymore. And that's what I did. I I retired because I wanted to spend more time and I was just a theater manager. I wasn't a guy who had a whole entertainment conglomerate. So I can just imagine that that it was easy for him to just say, I've accomplished more than most people ever will in this industry. And I want to watch my kids grow up and I want to enjoy my life. And that, in fact, that's what happened when he died. He was in Manhattan. He, he lived in Chicago, but he flew to New York to go see his son yep. and his just born grandchild. So you know, but but you you probably couldn't do that if you were still operating as a screenwriter and a movie producer where you could just literally pick up your life for a few days and head out because your your son just made you a grandfather. So that's what I can only imagine as somebody who is older than Hughes was when Hughes retired and a, a thought process because again he never gave many interviews and he certainly didn't you know give a an exit interview when he retired he just kind of like hung up his hat and said i'm done it's it's a fine way to go though i mean he, he yeah he went i mean he left these fantastic films behind and i know quentin tarantino talks about this with this whole like was it 13 films he's going to do thing uh, ten. he says ten. it's 10 but then you know if you depends count, on how you count it 
Yeah, it depends <laughs> on how you count it. Uh, Kill Bill, yeah, you have exactly. volume one, volume two. Is that one movie? Is that two movie? He counts it as one. So technically he's made nine. Mm-hmm. So, but I've, I have I don't believe... You don't you don't think he's going to retire when he he's going to stop making films? But he but, but but the point is he's like he's like you know what I don't want I, I I don't want to go out past my prime right I don't want to like see the quality of my work fall and basically leave the industry because nobody will fund any of my films like I want to go out and have a good collection of films behind me and John yeah. Hughes did that I don't think that was necessarily his intent but I mean it was a good decision because he left us wanting more. And, and that's fantastic, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So if you look at yeah, so if you look at his career, he's got three sections, clearly defined sections. There's the first three years where he pretty much did only movies related to teenagers, and then you, he's got a a second part, which again is only about three years, where he's dealing with more adult themes. Uh, she's having a baby, planes, trains, and automobiles. Uncle Buck. Where even though there's still kids around in a in a sense, um, it's mostly about these adults. And then he like quickly churns into this uh, mass entertainment of kids movies. And it's strange how abruptly all of them happen. In fact, if you uh, look at the production schedule, he did some kind of wonderful. And then he did, which he wrote and produced, but didn't direct. And then he did She's Having a Baby, which he did write and produce and direct. And then he did Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. But Planes, Trains, and Automobiles actually got released before She's Having a Baby. So it would have been a more smooth transition if She's Having a Baby came out first, because you're going from teenagers to 20-somethings to adults. But because the studio Paramount flipped the release dates of the two movies because Plane Strains and Automobiles is a more, you know, holiday themed movie because it takes oh, place yeah. during the holidays. Yeah. So if you watch Plane Strains and Automobiles, there's a cameo by Kevin Bacon as his character from She's Having a Baby <laughs> that oh. doesn't make any sense because <laughs> She's Having a Baby should have yeah. was supposed to come out <laughs> first. It would have made it would have been like a little mini universe tie-in. And it still is, but it didn't make as much sense in 1987 when planes, trains, and automobiles, because she having a baby hadn't come out yet. So you didn't know who that character was. And, (laughs) and, you know, and that scene is partially dependent on knowing Kevin Bacon's character and she's having a baby and at at least at the start of the movie. So it would have made more sense if the, if you watch him in the different and the other order, because, but that's his genius is that he was able to say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to drop this little nugget in here because of this movie that I'm doing over here. And then it'll kind of all tie in the worlds together. And then if you watch, she's having a baby at the end. Uh, he's got uh, John Candy and Dan Aykroyd, their characters from uh, The Great Outdoors, which also hadn't been released yet. You've got uh, Matthew Broderick for, uh, as Ferris Bueller. Uh, he's got several characters from his other movies in the end credits, giving baby suggestion names to the couple. So the universe, the universe, yep. really, really. cinematic so he, universe before that was, was the thing. He was doing that in the eighties. So <laughs> yeah. That's how, that's how genius he was, is that he was doing shared universes yeah. de- decades before Marvel or DC. Yeah. So I watched Ferris Bueller's day off with my, 
21st century teen son. Uh-huh. I don't know if it's just him or if it's t- the pragmatic uh, justice seeking 21st century kids these days. But <laughs> I, I was like, wasn't that awesome? And, and he, he was more concerned with the fact that that uh, Ferris Bueller got away with everything and justice yeah. wasn't served. And I'm like, that's kind of the point, dude. It's awesome. He's like, no. That's not justice wasn't served, man. It pisses me off. <laughs> yeah, actually, the, when Ferris Bueller came out, that was literally my first week working at movie theaters. And so when you're working in a movie theater as an usher, you're spending a lot of time in the theaters and cleaning and stuff like that. So you really get to see how people react to the movies. And But that was the reaction to Ferris Bueller from day one, there was a definite divide. There were the people who thought that <laughs> Ferris was awesome. And there were the people who, uh, Ferris, why, why did he get away with everything? <laughs> and, and so, yeah. And, and like the I, sister, but my, my son was like the sister, like Ferris Bueller, screw you, dude. You get away with everything. Right. Everybody loves you. Nobody knows you're horrible. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, yeah, but that, that was the divide way back then. And I'm one of those people that was, I, I like Ferris Bueller's day off, but I, I don't think he's all that cool. Uh, <laughs> I, I do see him for being the manipulative gaslighter. I get, you know, in, in modern parlance where, <laughs> but I, I don't take it to the level that Jeannie takes it in where she just gets so angry about everything. Uh, my wife does not like Ferris Bueller at all. She's very much a genie when it comes to (laughs) Ferris Bueller. She's just, she's like your son. It's just like, why did he get away with all of that? He's really not that cool of a role model. And, and I just remembered when we were uh, getting ready for this. Uh, did you know that Matthew Broderick is now 60 years old? Isn't that crazy? He turned 60 a couple months ago. And it's just like thinking that. Ferris Bueller, like the the epitome of of the sarcastic teenager, is almost about to collect social security. It's kind of Ferris scary. Bueller's social security check. That's the next movie. <laughs> That's the sequel. Fer- Ferris, Ferris Bueller, Bueller collects social security. No, Ferris Bueller as day off from the old folks' home. <laughs> <laughs> Ferris Bueller's hips off. <laughs> Um, but last thing before we wrap up, Edward, uh, where can people find your podcast or social media, anything about you that you want to share? Well, uh, you can find the podcast on pretty much every single podcatcher in the universe, except for anchor. It's not because I don't like anchor. It's just because anchor is kind of a closed system into itself, but, uh, or you can find me on Twitter currently at, uh, the eighties movie pod or, and, uh, for some of you old school, uh, movie fans my website my original website was filmjerk.com so uh i no longer really write about movies i just pretty much do only the the podcast so you can find episodes of the podcast on filmjerk.com all right perfect thanks for hanging out with us bro yeah man thanks for sharing that knowledge uh my pleasure and it was just interesting because john hughes was the subject of my very first podcast in 2019 and the whole i was on the fence about doing a podcast uh, because my favorite podcast, uh, 80s All Over, I don't know if you remember that one, did they stop doing it? And it's like, well, maybe I should do it. And I didn't, I was on the fence until I remembered in the first week of August of 2019 that that was the 10th anniversary of the passing of John Hughes. So I kind of whipped together um, an episode really quick just to see if I could even do it. 
So uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And if it wasn't for John Hughes, uh, I might not have ever gotten into podcasting. So there we go. Thank you. You got a big impact on your life, Edward. (laughs) Well, ladies, 90s Uncensored listeners, thank you for joining us in this uh, walk down memory lane with John Hughes. And uh, we're just going to say, visit us on the 80sandnighties.com, visit on the Twitter at the 80sandnighties.com. And with that, we're out here like the quality teen comedy. Nowadays, just full of vulgarity and extreme behavior. <laughs> I had to think of that last minute. <laughs> <laughs>